Hello, I'm Carl Stressman, the Chief Executive Officer of the American Quarter Horse Association. Welcome to Let's Talk AQHA, our new podcast platform. Let's Talk AQHA spotlights the versatility, athleticism, and legacy of the American Quarter Horse. The official podcast of the largest equine breed registry in the world, Let's Talk AQHA, brings American Quarter Horse industry leaders and experts together. With new episodes each month, the Let's Talk AQHA podcast features a variety of segments in every episode showcasing the diversity of America's horsepower, the American Quarter Horse. Let's Talk AQHA. Welcome back to our fifth episode of the American Quarter Horse Association's official podcast. We're here in Studio Q at the American Quarter Horse Association headquarters. I'm Bobby Loran, and I'm here with Jim Jennings. Morning, Bobby. We've got a really special episode today. We're going to be talking with the inaugural class of the Wrangler Women of Influence. All of these ladies are good friends of mine and Bobby's, and Carol Rose, Nancy Cahill, Robin Merrill, and Georgia Sutton, and they have all influenced our industry. In alignment with the values of Wrangler and the American Quarter Horse Association, the Wrangler Women of Influence Recognition is awarded annually to four women whose vision, character, and perseverance have impacted the industry and those around them. Carol, Nancy, Robin, and Georgia have all been incredible role models for so many people in the equine industry, and we're so honored to have them on our podcast. I'm here with Miss Carol Rose. Carol has quite the record. She has bred horses that have earned numerous world championships and reserve world championships. And she has also bred many high point and year end and all around winners. It is so extensive. She has judges cards in the American Quarter Horse Association, the National Cutting Horse Association, the National Reining Horse and American Horse Show Associations. She was an AQHA judge for 14 years. Carol was also an AQHA AQHA Professional Horsewoman of the Year in 1998, and she has been an AQHA director and is in the National Cowgirl, the Texas Cowboy, and the NRCHA, as well as the AQHA Hall of Fame. So, Carol, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Bobby. Thank you. Yes, thank you so much for being on with us today. We are so glad and honored that you're here. So, let's start from the beginning. How did your involvement in the horse industry begin? That's an interesting question. But my grandfather, first of all, my grandfather had a large cattle ranch in Central California. But at age three, my mother and my grandfather started taking me and my sisters to a local pony ring on Sundays. And this lady had a string of little ponies, and she had two rings. One ring, they were just for walk and trot, and the other ring you could run, as we called it, which was lope or canter, but we called it run. And so I I was three the first time I went, and I have a picture of it, and I was in the small ring, and I was waving at everybody because I could only walk and trot. That only lasted one week. The second week, I got to go in the big ring, and I got to, as we called it, run. And it was so much fun, and we did this every Sunday for, oh, I don't know, a couple of years. Besides, we would go to Grandfather's Ranch and ride real horses, big horses. And then on Sundays, after the pony ride, my grandfather would take us to the Atherton, California train station where they had these great big benches at the train station, and he would take a saddle and tie it on the bench. And we got to sit in the saddle and act like we were riding horses. 
That's all I knew. That's all I can remember ever knowing. And of course, we had a rocking horse at home, and we used to play horse show out in the front. You had a big gravel driveway, and we used to play horse show and have horse show classes. And I mean, we did, we played horse show and did horse things. I, I don't remember when we didn't. And I showed my first horse show when I was five, and it was just an open horse show. But all I remember is I would ride around the ring waving at all my friends in the grandstand. And I did this a couple of times, and my mother told me if I didn't concentrate and try to win something and try to do it right, that she wasn't going to take me anymore. So we, we rode, and we didn't have a trailer, so we would ride to the horse shows. The furthest one was eight miles, but most of them were just a couple of miles. And there were, it was where we lived as a horse community. They had, um, didn't have bike trails. They had horse trails, and you could ride everywhere. We would ride to the grocery store. Mother would call and place the order. They'd bring it out, and we'd hang it on the saddle horn and ride home. When I was eight, I won my first trophy. I had a black horse, and he was just a great horse named Blackie. And I won eight and under horsemanship. And after the show, the judge asked if he could talk to me. And he also wanted to talk to my mother. And he had seen me for three years just not concentrate and not care. But then that day that I decided to concentrate and care when I won my first trophy, he kind of gave me a little bit of a severe speaking to, like, Carol, if you'll concentrate and do what you're supposed to do, you'll go a long ways in this business. That's what you choose to do. And you need to thank your mother for being beside you and taking you to all this. And it was all for my mother. And she rode hunter ponies growing up. And when she was a freshman in college, she developed polio. And her horse days were over, but she loved it. And hence, that's where I got my start. AQHA is just one year older than I am. And there weren't a lot of quarter horse shows where I grew up. So I showed mostly American Horse Show Association and California Rain Cow Horse Association. I started showing cow horses when I was eight years old. That was the beginning of the California Rain Cow Horse, which is now the National Rain Cow Horse. But I've just been doing this. My entire life, as I said, started when I was five, and uh, I guess my love for the horse is what's kept me going all this time. So I, I see that you are also recognized as a 50-year breeder, and that is just incredible. Can you tell us about how you got your start in breeding? Sure. Matt Locke and I always raised some horses. He was very interested in that, and he would buy a stallion and a bunch of mares, and we would breed the stallion to the mares, then sell the whole group. But it isn't anything like we actually waited 11 months for the foals to be born. And I mean, he was very interested in the breeding part, but it was too slow for me. So many people were starting breeding farms. So many people that Matlock had taught and so many people my age were starting breeding farms. In 1975, we were showing cutting horses and we were going out the driveway, leaving to go to Calgary in July, to Calgary, Alberta, Canada. And I told Matlock, I said, I think we should start a breeding farm. And he was just shocked those words came out of my mouth because I was not, hadn't been interested. And he wanted to know what changed my mind. And I said, I just think it'd be fun. And it seems like that's what everybody's doing. So we need to get on the bandwagon. One of our customers, uh, Douglas Lake Cattle Company in British Columbia, that's where we were going. And they owned a stallion named Pepe San. So when we got there, we talked to Mr. Woodward, owner of Douglas Lake Cattle Company. Would you be interested in sending Pepe San to Gainesville, Texas? So we, we want to start a breeding farm with him. And he was. And so by November, Pepe Sam was at our house. And we had some other stallions. In 1976, 
I was in California looking for broodmares for a customer, and I was at a show in Norco, California, over Labor Day, and I saw the most beautiful horse I'd ever seen in my life showing at halter in two-year-old stallions. And he was totally unruly. He never stood still. And I find myself standing by the fence saying, whoa, every time he'd stop. Anyway, this horse was grand champion, and his name was Zan Parbar. And I went to the stall after the show, and the exhibitor, when I noticed joining, he was my professor in college where I went to Cal Poly, and I knew him very well. And then, and I knew the horse, and I did not like the way he was bred. But from that day forward, I learned that it didn't matter about the bloodlines. It was the individual that I looked at. And I asked him if that horse was for sale, and he said no. And I said, well, if you ever decide to sell him, I want you to give me first refusal. And we shook hands on that. A couple of months later, almost midnight one night, he called and said, there's been so many people interested in this horse since you looked at him. I think I'll sell him. And he told me how much money. And so the price was, was okay. And so it was midnight in Texas, two hours earlier in California. So I got on the phone and got a flight on American Airlines the next morning at five o'clock. I flew to California, rented a car. I knew exactly where this man lived because I had gone to college at Cal Poly. When I, I went to his house and his wife was there and I said, I've come to buy Zam Parbar. Oh, well, she said, my husband isn't home from school yet. And I said, I'll wait. And so when he got home from school, I looked at the horse again and then I asked him to ride him and he rode him and I didn't even know he was broke. And he rode him, and it was one of the prettiest sights I'd ever seen. So I bought him right then. And I was there a couple of hours. He said, is it okay if I tell people what you paid for him? I said, I don't mind at all. About two hours later, another horse trainer named Greg Whalen from California showed up there, and he came to pick up that horse. And Bill Gifford said, I'm sorry, but Carol's here, and she's already bought the horse. So we took him home. And then also that fall, we bought a cutting horse named Pepinita by Pepe San. And he was a beautiful black stallion. And so there, now we have three stallions to start with. And we started off with a bang in the 1977 breeding season. We showed Zam Parbar the whole year of 77, so we didn't breed a lot of mares to him that year. But starting 78, that year we bred 600 mares to those three stallions. And that started it. And I've never looked back. This went on for, uh, it went on for 40 years. Wow. That is so cool. Such a cool story. So I want to talk about your induction into several different halls of fame in the equine industry, particularly the AQHA. You were inducted in 2010. And what was it like being inducted and being recognized in the highest level in the equine industry? Gosh, it was amazing. It was, um, you know, I'd been... I remember the AQHA all my life, and I'd been going to the convention for years, and I'd been watching these inductions, and I would think, well, I wonder what you have to do to do this. I mean, it was it was unbelievable. It was such an honor, and like I've said many times, it's unreal to be honored how you spend your life. I've spent my whole life in the horse industry, and my love for the horse, and my love for the people, and my love to do what my mother always wanted me to do is just unbelievable that you get honored for something like that. 
Right, right. You've impacted it for the better. And it's just so cool to see everything that you've accomplished. And so moving on to other accolades that you've you've been awarded, can you tell us about you being named the Professional Horsewoman of the Year in 1998 and exactly what that award is for? You know, the Professional Horseman of the AQHA, you know, formed this award. And it's for a horsewoman or a horseman that have contributed a lot to the AQHA as well as have earned honors and earned awards showing. But I think besides the showing, it's the extra things you do for the AQHA that make you a professional. One of the coolest aspects of this award is that you are nominated and voted on by your peers. And it's the professional horsemen, horsemen and horsewomen who do this award. And it's I don't know how to say it, but it's really, really cool when your peers think that you're deserving to be professional horsewoman or horseman of the year. I mean, those are the people that are with you throughout your entire life, practically, depending on how long you've been showing. And to have that recognition for those people that are professionals in the industry as well, that is quite the honor. I mean, that is incredible. So not only are you so accomplished in the in the showing side of things, you have cultivated a love for the quarter horse through your passion and your investing into the next generation, into our youth. Can you talk about what you've done for the youth of the American quarter horse industry? Well, you know, keep in mind, I was a youth growing up, so I know what it's like. And I love children and I love to help children. I'm always there for anything I can do. But one of the biggest things that I love doing, it was so much fun when the AQHYA youth show moved to Fort Worth. They, uh, it was a pretty new show and they didn't, you know, I live close. I live 70 miles from Fort Worth and I have a lot of employees. So we offered to go down to Fort Worth, lock, stock and barrel and help with the show. So I took most of my employees, I'd leave a couple at home and we would take horses and we handled cattle for all the cattle events. And I personally worked at the back gate, calling in you know, classes and helping kids get in the gate. And I turned back for some of the cutters. I'd help settle the cattle. We took care of the cattle. We fed them. We unloaded the trucks. And we just kind of did everything we could behind the scene to make the show happen. I, d- I did this for about eight years. It was really fun watching these kids be little tiny kids. And by the time, you know, few years later, they'd be big kids. And it was just fun to, to watch them grow up and watch them improve. Just really, really, it was so, it was just so, so satisfying. Yeah, very rewarding. Through and through, I am just in awe of you, Carol, and, and just to see how you are an advocate for American Quarter Horses and their welfare, and just learning about you throughout your life and everything you've done, and how you're still contributing to the future of the American Quarter Horse. It is just awe-inspiring. So, what advice would you give to some of these young aspiring women who want to make a mark on the horse industry like you have? Work, have a good work ethic. Learn as much as you possibly can. Follow your dream. Don't let anything get in your way. But the main thing is you've got to have a good work ethic. When you're working with animals, I mean, it might be 24-7. It might be long 12-hour days. I mean, you have to have a great work ethic in the days and nights can't get too long. And you have to have your rest, but the animals come first. You've got to feed them because they can't feed themselves. You've got to care for them. You've got to call the doctor when they're sick because they can't do it themselves. Aspiring young person, just follow your dream. Just don't say you can't do it. There's no, in my vocabulary, there's no such word as can't. 
So Carol, what does it mean to you to be recognized as a Wrangler Woman of Influence? I mean, this is such a prestigious award that goes to those women who have been trailblazers, who have persevered and made such a positive, indelible mark on our industry. I was so amazed when I read about the Wrangler Woman of Influence Award. And then when I was nominated, I was even more amazed. And then to be chosen, but I want to thank all the people at Wrangler for sponsoring this award. And I want to thank the AQHA, especially Patty Tyberg, for putting this all together. In our event, you think about it as cowboys. But we were there really are cowboys and cowgirls. But really anything a cowboy can do, except chew snuff, women do. <laughs> women do also. And maybe some women chew snuff, I don't know. And we have some phenomenal cowgirls in this industry, whether they ride, whether they're a form of leadership, whether they have wonderful ideas going forward, new programs that they put forward to AQHID. There are so many women I think of without their influence, there wouldn't be some of these wonderful programs that AQHA has. 50 years ago, when people kept telling me I couldn't do something, I didn't argue with them. I just showed them I could. There's no difference in the cowboy and the cowgirl as far as doing the work. This association, the AQHA, is made up with so many wonderful people, regardless of whether they're men and women. And all my life, I've learned just as much from horse women as I have from horsemen. And there's been a lot of people before me do what I've done. And I just know that I can help people going down the road in later years. I can look back and say, gosh, I had a big influence in their life. Yes, ma'am. Thank you so much for dedicating your life for the betterment of our industry and for the betterment of the American Quarter Horse. Today, I'm talking to South Dakota rancher Georgia Sutton, who is one of the newly crowned Wrangler Women of Influence. Welcome, Georgia. Thank you, Jim. Glad to have you. It's interesting to see. I was I was a member in 1968. It's interesting to see how the landscape has changed over the years. It has. It has changed. Let's start. First off, tell me where, where you were born, where you were raised, kind of how you grew up. I was raised on the western border of South Dakota, Rapid City, and I'd always had horses, but they never were registered horses. And then I went to college, and I met this tall, handsome cowboy who lived in the center of the state, and uh, we got married. And as a wedding gift, he gave me my first registered quarter horse. And I went on to, to show her, and the highlight was the, the year or the, the show that I came in as reserve behind Howard Pitzer's Miss Buckets, who was High Point Mayor in the Nation that year. I started out showing, and I haven't quit yet. I just finished the, the Region 2 show in Rapid City, going grand under both amateur and open under all three judges with one of our horses. That's good now. Let's talk about the Sutton family and, of course, Ray, your late husband. How did Ray get in the horse business? Sutton's moved to South Dakota from Iowa, came to Potter County, hauling their possessions on a wagon with pulled by oxen. Kate and Edwin, the two children, decided to homestead, and they got quarters that were adjoining each other. They built their bedrooms in their own quarter because you had to sleep in your quarter to prove up on your, your land. 
And once that was done, then they traded that land for other land, Edwin did, and it was down on the Missouri River at a place called Forest City. And Forest City was the place that the ferry came across that brought all the livestock and people from the western part of the state across the Missouri River. When Edwin was able to to marry the local school teacher and they moved down river to the, the home place, which today is Sutton Bay Golf Course or Sutton Bay Resort. When Forest City went belly up, they took the hotel and they skidded it down on the ice to the home place. And that was the house that the children all grew up in. Edwin was always a wheeler and dealer and he had three sons, John, James, and my father-in-law, Raymond. And when the the going got rough in the 30s. They all pulled together and, and had some land that they sold to keep the home place going. At one time, they had over a 1,000 horses on the ranch. The first horses that came to the ranch that were registered were heavy horses because at that time, that's what people used for their farming and their transportation. And so they had all these draft horses that they used, and they, and they brought registered horses out of Iowa to start that breeding program. When horsepower started to decline, the Suttons sent a whole train car, not just one boxcar, but a whole train load of horses to Chicago. And it was written up in the, the local paper as the largest group of horses ever to come into Chicago on a train. And they sold those draft horses and decided to focus more on light horses for riding. I don't think they ever did anything with the remount program, but they did with cattle. I have a picture of my father-in-law on a pretty raw-boned old-looking horse, but they wanted something that would go all day long. And in 1948, Texas had a, a drought, and John and my father-in-law, Raymond, came to Texas and bought from Mayfield some of the best foundation mares that were available. And of course, the price was really good because there was nothing to feed them in Texas. So they got a good deal. And they took those horses to South Dakota. And the first registered quarter horse was born on the place in 1949. And then they started having horse sales because they started breeding. And, and the first sales had a few registered babies that were out of those mares they got out in Texas. But a lot of them were unregistered horses. This year, we'll have our 73rd production sale, and we have the oldest quarter horse production sale in the world. And today, everything is registered, but that's how the horses came. In the beginning, most of the horses we sold in the sale went to people that were going to use them to work cattle and on their ranches. Today, our production sale probably has maybe 20% of the colts going to somebody that's going to use them as a working partner, and the rest of them go to show, or they go to somebody that wants a friend to pleasure ride or just have in the pasture. So that's how Ray grew up then there on the ranch. Yes, he did. Now, as I remember, didn't you teach school for a while? I taught school for 40 years. When I'd come home, then I'd do whatever I could help with on the ranch, but horses have always been my passion. As I say, I got a, a quarter horse for a wedding present, and that started me in the show business. When did y'all become involved with AQHA? Raymond's family had always been members since the 50s. And when we got married, I became a member in 68. We came to convention. We had uh, one of our board members from South Dakota that encouraged Ray to, to come to convention and eventually become a director. And that's how we got involved as 
through good people that could see a young man that had some potential and eventually served on the board for 20-some-plus years. When he resigned, I, I took over as a board director, and now I'm an honorary vice president, but I still sit on the board. I sit on the ranching committee. Now, you, you also were involved with your affiliate, the uh, South Dakota Quarter Horse Association. I was the first woman to be a president of that. When I first became a member, everybody on the board was a man. And then Laurel Walker Denton was the first woman to go on to the board. And today, I think probably half the spots on the AQHA board are held by women. But uh, the landscape has changed. You served as an AQHA director, and now you're an honorary vice president. What committees have you served on other? You know, you said you were on the ranching committee. What else have you served on? I um, was on the Hall of Fame selection committee. I been on the stud book and registration committee, and now the ranching committee. In 2018, you and Ray were inducted into the American Quarter Horse Hall of Fame. Tell me about that. It was an awesome feeling because we were only the second couple to be inducted. Dancy and Doug Deere out of Montana had been inducted quite a few years before that, but most of the inductees are single. They're either a man or a woman. To have an induction as a couple, I think, is very correct because most of the time it's not just one of you that is successful and working. It's a, it's usually a joint venture between both the man and the woman. And since Ray is gone, Heather, our daughter, and I now manage the ranch and run the business. I know y'all also received AQHA's Legacy Award, which is for 50 continuous years of breeding American Quarter Horses. That's a pretty good accomplishment, too. We had received the Legacy Award in, in the 1980s. We received the first one, and that was for the ranch. And then Ray received the Legacy Award posthumously uh, two years ago. So we've received the Legacy Award twice. And it's, it's, a wonderful, it's a wonderful honor. As we said in the beginning, you were one of the inaugural Wrangler Women of Influence, and that's really a neat deal. Talk about that a little bit, Georgia, and all. Tell me, uh, tell me what it means to be a Wrangler Woman of Influence. There are very few honors that are given to people that can be equated to that. I'm, you know, to be inaugural and to be with the other three women that were inducted. I'm not sure why I was there, but. It certainly was a wonderful time to be there, and, I, and I'm proud of all that we have done to, to change the landscape of AQHA. But hearing, hearing the stories of Robin Merrill and, and the rest of the women that were in there, um, it makes me really proud to be a woman in AQHA and see that some of the things that we have done have changed the landscape for the better. That's good. That's good. Is there anything else you want to bring up? Well, I think that there are a lot of opportunities still in the horse industry. I don't think it's going to go away. It looks like the World Show is being pretty successful right now, so I think the horses will continue on. In closing, is there any advice that you could give to young women in the American quarter horse industry? I talked to a young woman. We were watching the ranch riding finals, and she had just gotten into the industry. She was going to be competing with reining. She just was really excited. I think that as a young woman coming up, 
that maybe you don't need to have such a fire in your stomach to be the one that runs the first place driven. I think you just need to enjoy the horse and be sure that you are doing the best for both you and the horse. I've always said that a horse is the the cheapest way to have any kind of psychological counseling. They never pass judgment on you, and they're always willing to listen, and uh, they enjoy having somebody that takes care of them and and interacts with them. I think if if you have opportunities, uh, you know, and, and it doesn't have to be the the best horse in the world to to make you a happy camper. A registered quarter horse is a nice thing to have. It gives you a, a little bit of background and it gives you a lot of opportunities. And And there are many things that have opened up that at one time were not available. If you don't want to be in the show pen, there are certainly lots of opportunities to enjoy your equine partner in different ways. Georgia, thank you very much. Again, congratulations on your award. That is really, really neat. Right now, we're, we're sitting down with Nancy Cahill. But before we talk to Nancy, I want to give you a little background on her. Nancy was named the AQHA Professional Horsewoman of the Year in 1996 and the Texas Quarter Horse Association Most Valuable Professional in 2015. She was selected as a Team Wrangler Professional Horseman in 2018-19. And finally, in 2022, she was recognized with AQHA's Merle Wood Humanitarian Award. First off, Nancy, tell us how and where you were raised and how you became involved with horses. I was raised in Texas City, Texas, which is on the Gulf Coast home of many chemical plants and no horses. So where I came from, my parents wondered, where did this girl come from that was just obsessed with horses? I'd play in the yard. If I found a little piece of bridle rein in somebody's pasture, it was a cherished treasure. So I've come a long way from that. My father was a dentist and my mother was a housewife and he loved boats. So I spent a lot of my time out on the water fishing. And on the ground, I was loping around the yard. <laughs> so, <laughs> My mother started taking me to Houston every Saturday, approximately the first grade, because I was so crazy about horses. And so we would travel to Houston every Saturday for English riding lesson. I learned to ride English first. Not that I was very good, but that's what I learned to do first. And that was something I looked forward to. It was what made the week for me. When I was in the fourth grade, my mother decided that I really was into it, and I don't even know how she found out about this horse that lived on top of a little knoll about 100 yards from the bay, and she lived through Hurricane Carla. I thought she was absolutely beautiful. She was probably skin and bones, and she was the best-looking thing I had ever seen because she was mine, and she paid $150 for her and the saddle. We kept these horses with a whole bunch of other kids. It was kind of like a gang down the dump road. And everybody built their little shed row next to the next shed row. So it, there'd be like 10 or 12. The architecture was interesting because it was made out of anything you could find. But at least they had a little bit of shelter. So that was your first horse. And then was it after school that you got your next one then or what? Because my father did not know anything about that horse for a while. It was just I would disappear every afternoon. He finally learned that I was really into this. And so he kind of joined in the club of Nancy Loves Horses, and we're going to do something about this. And they bought me a little bit better one when I was in high school and, and then a little bit better one 
And that's when I got to start showing a little bit. Did you have horses at college? I actually took 11 horses to college with me. And what parents would ever let you do that, only parents that didn't really know anything about horses and how much work that involved would let you take 11 head of training horses. Because I started that in high school with a man who wanted me to teach his little girls to ride. And I guess I did enough of a good job with them that he had some other horses in training. He brought them home and let me show them. At that time, there was no youth. When I was in high school, I can remember maybe the first AQHA youth show that I went to was Houston Livestock Show in 1966. We showed in the bottom of the Dome Stadium. Before that, though, you had to show with the trainers, which everybody did, and nobody thought anything of it. Nobody thought that they were better than you. I showed against them, and sometimes I'd beat them. And that's where the showing started. So tell us about your family, Nancy. I know you and your husband, Bubba, started your own training facility, and you raised your kids around your horses. So can you tell us about your kids and how your horses have played a role in your family's life? We worked for two different people before we bought this place in Madisonville. And we wouldn't be having this conversation, however, if it wasn't for horses, because they were everything in my life. They sent my kids to college. They've been our life 24-7 for 50 years, which we've been married that long. I went to Sam Houston State for two years and then graduated from Texas A&M in 1974. That's when we went to work for the other two people for a little while. Then we bought this place in Madisonville thinking, they won't make any more land. Maybe we should invest in a little bit of land. And we ended up building on this place. And now you have grandchildren, and I believe they're involved in horses, right? Yes, four of the five of them ride. The fifth one's only a four-year-old, so she hasn't really started yet. But the other four ride, and they're really into it, which means... I may have to get another job (laughs) because they're going to break me. (laughs) We'll never financially recover, Nancy, but we'll have fun. (laughs) It's a great way to go. Okay, along with training horses, since you've been in the business, you've shown horses at the AQHA World Shows and the Congress and lots of other big shows. You kind of touched on this a while ago. You you started showing actually while you were in college. I started showing in 4-H and then moved my way up to the quarter horse shows. Then I had some really good customers, even when I was in college, that allowed me to go to the Congress, which we had never left the state of Texas before. After graduating in May, we went to the Congress in October for the first time, which was a great adventure with a wonderful horse. At the time, who knew how good she really was? And I ended up winning the junior pleasure at the Congress on her as a two-year-old. Her name was Wahini Dancer. And we never thought that would happen. We just thought we were on the great adventure of the lifetime. (laughs) All right. Through your career, you spent a lot of time volunteering for the youth in the American quarter horse industry. And how did you become involved in working with the youth? Well, the first two little girls in Texas City were the first ones I think I ever helped and taught to ride. When I was in college, however, I didn't have a lot of kids and we couldn't go anywhere so much because of school. But when we bought this place, all of a sudden I had a lot of youth riders, which probably made up the majority of the people that were my clients. They were the kids of the clients. And it just blossomed into a lot more kids. And some of my kids are pretty old kids now. Some of them are in their 70s. (laughs) They tell me they were just the old kids. Like Dr. Thomas, he was one of my old children. I have a piece of a 
t-shirt that they made one time and it says Cahill Kids on it. I'm looking at it as we speak and there's probably 25 names on it and it just says some of us are a little older than others. (laughs) But when we would go to horse show, we'd be walking the trail and there might be 10 little kids following and it truly looked like ducks in a row. Oh, that is so sweet. We obviously know that youth is one of your passions, and you're currently one of the coaches for Team U.S. for Youth World Cup. Can you tell us about how you've gotten involved with Youth World Cup and what it is and what it entails? I started with Youth World Cup in 1988. Skip Parker was the executive director of the TQHA. Two gentlemen, one Australian, one U.S., got together and decided they'd have a friendly competition, and this was in the 70s. And for a couple of years, they had this competition in uh, Australia and Canada and the U.S. And then it kind of died for a while. And then Skip thought it was a great idea. So he started it again in 1988. And he said, hey, you want to coach this team? And I said, well, sure. I came across a piece of paper the other day that had team members on it. And they're all either $3 million riders, million-dollar riders now in the reining and the cutting It was amazing to find that list because I couldn't really remember who they were. But the World Cup is an international event for kids 18 and under. And we have a host country. The host country gathers donated horses that these kids have never ridden before. And we have great clinicians come in and teach them every day per event. And we have the showmanship, the cutting, the reining, equitation, the horsemanship, the ranch riding, and the trail. And so we have specialists in those events come in to teach them, and they take care of the horses. They do not feed the horses. We have a feed team that comes in and feeds the horses, and they're responsible for taking care of them, keeping them clean, cleaning the stalls, watering them. Then they all go back to wherever they're staying, and the transportation is also furnished by the country that's hosting. All the meals, and they pay an entry fee per country at the end of the week. We have a competition. We can have three riders in some events and two in others. It depends on how many horses of the type that get donated that we use. We don't really want the top of the line horses. We don't want your world champions. We want just a nice horse because there's many of the time that we take a rope horse and make an Eck horse out of him. It's can you ride? That's the thing. So when each country chooses their team members, it's with that in mind. Can you ride something that's not maybe like you've been showing all your life? This one might be a little bit difficult, and can you handle it? We also have five riders, and then we have five leadership that are able to come. The leadership kids get to do everything that the riders do, but they can't ride. They can help on the ground with showmanship, and many of the time, our leadership kids are great at showmanship, and so they will school whoever our riders are on the showmanship. So they're very involved. We have events for them to go to culturally. We try to show them everything in each country that is possible. We take them on tours in the afternoons when they're through riding. And most of the time, they're really tired when we get through. So we don't have much trouble. You mentioned Dr. Tommy a while ago as being one of your students. And of course, I don't remember how old Dr. Tommy is, but He's not one of the younger ones for sure, but I got to know Dr. Tommy at the Youth World Cup that we had here in Amarillo a number of years ago. He brought a horse for us to use, at least one, maybe two, I don't know, but he also volunteered for the feed crew. 
So he and I and Cam Foreman and two or three others, we all met out at the fairgrounds every morning at six o'clock and fed all those horses. And then we loaded up and went to breakfast and Dr. Tommy went with us and it was a lot of fun. But he and I, we've been friends ever since then. And he still talks about going to breakfast at the auction barn. (laughs) (laughs) That's where we went. Has one of the Youth World Cups been more memorable than any other? Every time we have one, it's better than the last one. As far as I'm concerned, I always think we can't outdo this, except when COVID hit. These kids were chosen. They had their plane tickets. The people in the Netherlands had the venue. They had the horses. They had it all organized. And then all of a sudden, it wasn't going to happen. So one of our team members, Jessica McAllister, decided, you know, why can't we do this virtually? And she got together a whole bunch of kids from other countries on Zoom calls, and they decided how we were going to do it. I was so impressed that, hey, they were technologically that smart to get it done. And so what we did, we still had the same classes. We didn't have the clinicians. You could ride pretty much any horse you wanted to, but we suggested that you rode a horse that you did not know. But we couldn't prove that, so just ride. So if we had three from your country in horsemanship, then you sent us the videos. We sent the patterns. Everybody ran the same pattern. We also added video scrapbook and something cultural from your country. The Japanese sent these little girls. They were on these horses, and they were in traditional samurai costumes with their swords coming racing over a hill. It was so interesting and so entertaining. Tim Kimura and Brad Jewett said, well, we'll do the results on the Keeping It Real show. And so there were kids up at 3 a.m. on the other side of the world watching the Keeping It Real show because each class winner and reserve was announced. We already had all the awards. We had the buckles and the trophy and everything. And so we just shipped them all to the winners. We barely, barely beat Canada. They were so competitive. And we sent all these videos, by the way, to different judges. So you might judge the horsemanship and then we'd send the videos for the trail to somebody else. So they didn't just judge the whole thing. Lots of people were involved. So these kids that organized this, it was the most amazing event, I guess, ever. That's so special. I love that. You are also a founding member of the Texas Quarter Horse Association. How did that happen? There were a lot of us in show and race that felt like we needed to have an organization that was involved in all things quarter horse in the state of Texas. The only one I can think of that has been there as long as I have is Chip Jones, and he's still on the board. We're always the ones to ask what happened when, you know, well, a long time ago, this is what happened, and that's the reason it's the way it is, and maybe it needs to be changed, but this is the way it was back then. So we got the organization going, and Skip Parker was our executive director, and it just built from there. It's a great organization, and one of the few that race and show are combined, and our race people are so supportive of everything show. And we try to go to the races, and we actually have a race experience for our kids. We did it last year. We're going to do it again this year. We take them to Sam Houston Park. Rob Worsler takes them around to the barns and through the stands, and they rented them a suite with food, and they went to the races. And so it was just a one-day thing. But they asked me yesterday, are we going back to Sam Houston this year? So they really enjoyed it. That's good. 
That's good. Well, all right, what about AQHA? What committees have you been on as far as your involvement in the American Quarter Horse Association? I've been on the youth committee forever. They moved several of us from youth to show for a while in case there were big rule changes in the youth, which there really aren't too many. So they put us back into the youth, which I think is of major importance because without these young ones coming up, there's nobody to replace us. And then I'm on the board of directors. And then maybe most importantly is the Animal Welfare Commission. I've been on it for a couple of years now, and it's truly eye-opening. Ward Stutz heads that, and he knows what's going on in this country about animal welfare, and he certainly keeps us informed so we can make informed decisions. With every one of our podcasts that we've done, we also have an animal welfare segment. So, I mean, it is very important. You know, that's neat that you're on that commission. I did not know that. So let's jump back into training horses. What events do you train for, Nancy? I train mostly for the all-around and particularly the pattern classes. We've done the reining, we've done the cutting, but it's mostly the all-around things and teaching people to be better horsemen, not just a rider, but everything about the horse, you know, particularly taking care of it. Animal welfare issue is a big one. And so you need to be raised with the thought of respect for the animal. So the all-around events are where my heart lies, and we really try to keep these people in horses for the rest of their life. Right. It's such a sweet part of life. So let's talk about being a Wrangler woman of influence. What was your first thought when you found out that you were nominated and you had been selected for this prestigious award? Well, when I got Patty's call, I was fairly speechless because I think Carl sent out a message or something on a, on an email about nominating for this. And to be nominated is one thing, but to be chosen with those other three ladies, the recognition for that is unparalleled to me. Those three ladies have done so much in their life. And to stand with them, I was so proud. In keeping with that theme now, what advice would you give to young women that are in the American quarter horse industry or getting started in the American quarter horse industry? I would say you need to get an education first because life changes and you don't know that this one will work out for you or maybe you get hurt. And having that to fall back on, I always thought when I graduated from A&M, there is something else I could do. And as my roommate actually did do, She went off in a different direction, and we were biomedical science majors. She worked for a chemical company. She typed kidneys for John Seeley Hospital in Galveston, so we could go many directions. And I always felt like I had something else I could do if this failed me. And so, you know, I set my goal to do this because I was so in love with it. If I had failed, at least I had some knowledge of another direction that I could go. How many biomedical science majors do you know that are professional horse trainers? (laughs) Mm, Zero. (laughs) Our one and only Nancy Cahill. My roommate and I were the first women allowed to apply for vet school. That was the original idea was to go to vet school. Along that way, all those classes counted in that direction. And so biomedical science was the next thing down. And we didn't get chosen, but they took four PhD girls from UT that had 
PhDs in psychology, and I thought, you probably can't put a halter on a horse, but okay, I'll go a different direction. (laughs) And I guess it was a good thing I did, because it all worked out quite well. Awesome. Well, Nancy, that's all we have today. And we just want to thank you for spending time with us today on our podcast. We really enjoyed you. Thank you. I want to thank AQHA and Wrangler and all the sponsors also, because we got some beautiful gifts at that reception that we never even thought was necessary, but it was just an added great thing. And I think, as I said before, this was like our Kennedy Center honor. That is for the arts, and they're honoring a lifetime of achievement. And so if anything comes close to the Kennedy Center honors for us, it's this. That's neat. That's neat. Congratulations. We'll see you later. Now we're here with Robin Merrill. Robin has been involved in AQHA for most of her life, and she started showing in AQHYA at an early age. Now she's supporting AQHA by serving on the American Quarter Horse Foundation. Before we talk to Robin, though, I want to kind of summarize some of her accomplishments. She was appointed to the Foundation Committee in 1994, and in 2004, she was appointed to the Foundation Council, serving as chairwoman from 2004 to 2006. She continued her service on the council until 2012, and then she served on the AQHA Youth Committee. In 2016, she was again appointed to the Foundation Council and served this time until 2018. In 2019, Robin was the first appointed member to the Foundation's Board of Trustees, where she continues to serve. And in 2019, Robin became an AQHA Honorary Vice President. Robin, we're glad to have you today. Welcome. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. To begin... Tell us where you were born, where you grew up. Well, I was born in the Dalles, Oregon. That's where my mother's doctor was. I lived in Hepner, Oregon. Uh, my grandfather and grandmother ranched there. And uh, my sister Judy and I spent a, a lot of time with Grandma and Grandpa throughout our young lives. Grandpa always had good ranch horses and plenty of things for us to do. He didn't have any grand uh, boys, so I guess that's where I my love for ranching, the Western lifestyle, horses, fishing, all the things that Grandpa loved to do. Okay. Now your father's Doc Severinsen, who at that time uh, was a regular on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, and at that time he was probably the most famous trumpet player in the world. And I know he wasn't around horses, so you you got your horse experience from your uh, grandparents on your mother's side. Yes, I did. And, I mean, without going into real details, we were a blended family. So when uh, I, I believe I was 11, my grandparents put me on an airplane and off I went to Warwick, New York. And uh, I thought my life had probably ended. I had gotten kicked and had a cast from my ankle to my hip besides leaving Oregon I was a little bit a little bit upset about that but as it turned out we lived in Warwick New York for a little while and then moved to Branchville New Jersey for better schools that's where I really got involved with the American Quarter Horse through the New Jersey Quarter Horse Association back in the day when Bud Ferber and all those great horsemen 
a lot of people don't realize existed, it was a really fun time for me. When did you start showing in AQHA shows? Probably when I moved back back east, believe it or not, because in in Oregon, even though a lot of grandpa's horses were quarter horses, I, I can't remember if they were all registered or not, but they sure looked good. So when when we moved back east, I got heavily involved through the New Jersey Quarter Horse Association with the the family, the Roths, R-O-S-T-S. I learned almost every discipline because in their stable, they taught jumping, hunting, quarter horse, halter, and they lived right above the Sussex County Fairgrounds, which had one of the biggest uh, shows in the area and always had registered quarter horse classes. So I guess really and truly, mostly in Oregon, we did play days and, you know, small fry little play days and, and it was just all fun. I know you showed at the very first youth finals back in 1972. And of course we called it youth finals back, back then. And, and you won a class and I shot your picture for the journal. So tell us what class that was and, and what it was like to show at the very first youth world show, which is what, of course, what the youth finals became. Oh, it was so exciting because if memory serves me, the the youth finals before that was canceled for a disease, I believe, and I was supposed to ride Dude's Dream in the raining, and then she developed some problems. So I rode Doc Barlinda in what they called the English Pleasure back then, which is kind of ironic because she was a cowbred mare. I mean, I showed her in Halter. I rode her, showed showmanship, English Pleasure, a little bit of Western Pleasure. She was a little bit hot for that, but and I rained on her a little bit, too. Bob Anthony helped me with her a lot, and he was the trainer at Willow. What was it? J.J. Willow. Uh, Willow Brook. Willow Brook, yeah. And that's actually where we got her from. So, yeah, Doc Barlinda. Oh, that's so exciting. So after you got out of youth, didn't you have your own horse farm? Um, and did, I think you ran that by yourself, correct? Yes, I I graduated from High Point Regional High School in New Jersey, and I loaded up my horse. At the time, I had a Western riding horse, I believe. Farrell's Dunbabe was her name, and we got her from a famous family in the East that had great horses, the Pharaohs. And um, I headed to uh, Ocala, Florida. I intended on going to junior college, but somehow that didn't happen. And instead, I went to college under the watchful eye of Carol Harris. And um, I got to, uh, oh gosh, I got to ride at everything from cutting horses to race horses. It was a great experience. I learned a lot about reproduction. And of course, back then it's a lot different than it is now, but I just learned how to take care of horses, how to take care of your horse trailers. It was a, it was a great learning experience. So from then I moved to, my dad bought a little place in Aubrey, Texas. And um, I managed his quarter horse racehorses, and then I had a few show horses on my string. It's nothing like it was back then. I wouldn't recognize the the area, but it was a great place. Many good horsemen in the area, and um, I really enjoyed being there. And after my grandpa died, my grandmother moseyed on down from Oregon. She and her dog and uh, came to live with me because I didn't want to live by myself. So it was a great move. and. Um, uh, I really enjoyed the area. Well, after you and Frank got got married, now 
Did he already have Windward Stud before y'all were married? Yes, he established Windward Stud in 1972, I think. And we were married in 75. So he'd already had a pretty established place. And so when we were married, we kept my little place for a little while because we went down to the North Texas area a lot to show. And then we sold it and moved everything. My dad sort of got out of the quarter racing business. And so I moved all my my few horses up there. And we started as a team. And 40-some years later, here we are. We sold Windward Stud in 2006. And we ran it for several years for the new owners. And then in 2012, we looked at each other and and we said, well, all our children live in North Texas, so I guess we'll go there. And it's kind of funny, Matt and Megan, Megan being my middle child and her husband, were driving around their neighborhood. And at the same time, Kyle Converse, Frank's sister, was looking online and they found the very same place the very same day. So we looked at it and Tyler looked at it, my son and I drove down first and then Frank drove. We both came down and it was a pretty instant, this will work. Well, now you call it M5 performance bloodstock. Is that correct? Yes, that's kind of, it developed from the five of us. Oren Mixer and Frank and I kind of, I still have some of the drawings of our ideas somewhere. We came up with the M Lazy 5 as our brand. So we've always had a bloodstock agency as far as, buying and selling and appraising and all that good stuff. So now after we sold Windward Stud, we just go buy M5 Performance Bloodstock. So basically I'm sort of retired and Frank does a lot of appraisals and um, we chase our grandchildren around. That's where we are right now. So earlier we talked about the American Quarter Horse Foundation and how you've been serving on, um, the foundation for quite some time. How did you become involved with the American Quarter Horse Foundation? I evolved into it pretty naturally because I I started going to the convention before way before Frank and I were married, and I just felt compelled to learn as much as I could about the whole organization. I really I really wasn't that interested in rulemaking. I was interested in the horses, the members, how we could improve our association. And that always kind of led me to the work that I that I became. And so I was all in when they asked me to join the foundation. To kind of switch gears and, and talk a little about the Wrangler Women of Influence, at the reception where it was announced, I'm pretty sure it was mentioned that you had helped Wrangler develop what they called the perfect riding gene. How did that happen? Well, Robin of Wrangler had become a good friend, and they were having a fitting at the convention. But before that, she she called me and several other people and said, what do you look for in a gene? And, of course, I'm going to say comfort. Throughout the months before the convention and before the fitting at the convention, she just would ask several questions about what was important in a gene to me. And... She asked a lot of other people, too. And then my oldest daughter, Mackenzie, had actually modeled for her several times throughout that period of our lives. And 
so at the convention, there was a big poster of McKenzie out front of the fitting room, and everyone could come in there and try on the new jean. And they actually gave us a pair. So it was fun, and I kind of enjoyed that process. And Mackenzie really did because that's part of her world right now. Oh, that's really cool. So let's talk about being a Wrangler Women of Influence. What was your first thought when you found out that you had been nominated and recognized? Well, first of all, I was overwhelmed and um, so appreciative because I guess I didn't ever set out to win anything except maybe in the arena, to go in with that group of women, uh, Nancy Cahill, who has been a lifelong friend, our sons, their best friends, of course, Carol Rose and um, Georgia Sutton. I knew them intimately as far as horse world goes. And so to put my name with those three other ladies, I, I was pretty much overwhelmed. Aww. What does it mean being recognized as a Wrangler Woman of Influence? I think it's a great honor. I didn't really know that I was influencing anyone, but I hope I had influenced my children at least. It's a great honor. I think it's such a wonderful award, and uh, I can't wait to see where it goes and who who's next because I know there's so many women in our industry that don't really set out to be on the pedestal. They're just doing what they do for the good of the horse and the good of our members. So, yeah, I was pretty excited. Well, it was well-deserved, Robin. To finish up, what advice would you give to young women in the American quarter horse industry today? Well, first of all, to all the young women, don't lose sight of our history. It's so important. And the industry has changed so much. The breeding, the reproduction. We've had so many strides in equine research. We need to really keep on top of that, I would just say care, you know, care about your fellow horsemen and your fellow breeders and be involved. Something Frank and I are very adamant about is that our youth and our young adults become involved, not just in the arena, but past the arena. I just hope that all the youth and young people, uh, we need you. We need you out there on the committees especially the foundation committee. I really admire your passion and we can just tell how much this means to you. Robin, we really appreciate this and you've had a wonderful, uh, wonderful life in the American quarter horse industry. And you and I have been friends for a long, long time and you and I and Frank, and it's been really neat knowing you all this time and, and the time that, that we've been able to spend together. And we really appreciate uh, you spending this time with us today for the podcast. Well, I appreciate it, JJ. You're one of my favorite people. Welcome to our second segment of Let's Talk AQHA, where we discuss animal welfare. Joining us to talk animal welfare is AQHA Chief Racing Officer Janet Van Beber. Janet is here with us today in Studio Q at our headquarters in Amarillo, and it's such a pleasure to have her discuss the importance of animal welfare in American quarter horse racing. Hi, Janet. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks, Bobby, and thanks, Jim. It's a great opportunity for me to speak on integrity in racing because I don't think the general public knows all of the measures our industry takes to protect the horse. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. Janet, all right, to start, tell us about your background in racing and what your current position as chief racing officer entails. What, what is a chief racing officer? 
Well, we'll start with my background. And I'm a, Frank Merrill one time described me as a lifer. And I thought, well, that's appropriate because I've been in the horse industry my entire life. My parents were involved on a professional level. My dad on the reproductive side of, of race horses and my mom trained performance horses. So I had that knowledge of the racing industry through the stallions that my dad stood in, in Southern California. And then I had horsemanship skills that were taught to me by my mom. And so uh, when I was in college, I determined that I was interested in the racehorse field. I had the opportunity to go work a two-year-old in training sale at Hollywood Park, and I said, this is the industry for me. And I just fell in love with it, and I've never looked back. I got my degree. While I got my degree, I was already developing my career as a bloodstock agent, and I did two-year-old training sales, I did yearling sales, I did the quarter horse yearling sales and mixed sales, because I, I never left my love for the quarter horse. Fast forward to 1992, and I married my husband, Steve Van Beber, and I left my bloodstock operation, moved to where he was with his stable in Louisiana, and we trained together. We trained together until his untimely death in 2000, and then I went on as Janet Van Beber Racing Stables. And I enjoyed a lot of success during the 10 years that ensued and became AQHA's only female trainer to win a 1,000 races. I trained multiple world champions, and I was blessed with a really good stable, several titles as leading trainer and, and all of that. And I couldn't have done it without a great team. But the hard thing about it is I was raising my daughter on my own, and I did not want to be on the road while she was in high school. So I was proactive in planning to sell my ranches and retire from training in 2012 when she was in the eighth grade so that the four years that she was in high school, I wouldn't be on the road. I enjoyed that period immensely because once your kids spread their wings, you, you don't get that time back. And uh, I wasn't sure what I was going to do after she graduated high school and was preparing to leave for college. And God always has a plan because the day of her graduation is the day that Craig Huffines called me to come talk to him about this job. I took that as a sign just by sheer timing of it. And uh, I came and I spoke with he and, and the other panel that interviewed me. And I felt like this was an opportunity to use my skill set to positively impact the trajectory of the business. And so I've been here ever since. And that was in 2016. So I'm in my seventh year now. So that's my background. Now, what do I do? That was the second component of the question. The honest truth is I didn't know what I was going to be doing when I took the job. <laughs> the role is very wide and diverse, and my experience as a horseman helps in every single capacity. I had a huge learning curve internally at AQHA. Um, I had always had staff do clerical things for me and, and uh, manage certain components that were behind a desk. And I had to learn to be a big girl and do a lot of that myself because that's what is required in the job to, to get things done. But when it came time to participate in policy discussions and, and things to better the sport and things to make our challenge program more viable, things to encourage participation in, in different programs that are specific to racing, the youth racing experience, all of those things I had a plethora of experience in and I'm super passionate about. So it's been very rewarding for me to have a, a role in making all of those individual things more viable going into the future. In addition to everything that I do at AQHA, there are a lot of other organizations that help support the integrity in racing. There is the Racing Official Accreditation Program, 
and I sit on their board of directors. They help train uniformity amongst the stewards and the regulators in the sport. There is the Racing Medication Testing Consortium. They help determine different scientific aspects of medication in the industry. And medication is a a big deal, and we might have the opportunity to talk more about that. I sit on that executive committee and the general board of directors. Uh, I happen to be named on the Gluck Research Foundation at the University of Kentucky, again, to determine integrity and positive measures that will impact the sport. And I attend all of the Association of Racing Commissioners International meetings where they afford me a voice to express the, the quarter horse version of what we need in rules. And I'm very proud to have achieved breed-specific rules through that body that um, have helped protect our horses in our industry. Wow, you are so well-rounded. I know AQHA is so blessed to have you. So what is AQHA's role in racing as an association? The first thing we have to remember is that we are a breed registry. We are not a regulator. That's where the, the race discipline differs from our show horse counterparts. So as the breed registry, it's in our mission to go ahead and protect the horse, to protect their welfare, and to, and to further the sport. I may have paraphrased it, but that's the intent of our mission statement. So all of those different boards of directors I mentioned that I sit on, I am carrying AQHA's mission to do just those things. We try to have a voice that positively impacts all of their individual actions. Now, AQHA has a uh, both a racing council and a racing committee. What are their responsibilities for this? Our racing committee is a large group. Most people are surprised that there are nearly 100 members on the racing committee. And I like to look at them as our boots on the ground. So through the various emails that I may send and the meetings that we have uh, at least twice a year, we have a meeting at convention and we have a meeting during our racing conference that's held in conjunction with the Challenge Championships in the fall. I'm able to report to them what's going on in the industry as I am enduring different involvements through the year, again, at all of those associations. And then they give their feedback about what's going on. There are certain times there are action items that come out of those meetings uh, that they they want to see us pursue as an association, and, and those action items uh, then are forwarded to the Racing Council to approve. And so they are involved with policymaking. They're kept abreast of ongoing situations in the industry, and they help facilitate that communication back to their specific jurisdiction. And, and I think that role is critical because our industry is so vast that without those boots on the ground out in the field every day, our general membership wouldn't be involved with what's going on. And so then the Racing Council takes their actions and ratifies them to be presented to the EC. Um, or in some rare cases, they don't because they have a perspective that, that they want to see it maybe a broader picture or we want the timings not right, whatever the case may be. And the council is also uh, the upper tier of governance for, for the racing department. And they are privy to some of the confidential information that I have that I might not share to a group of 100 and different measures that I'm doing to help protect the sport things that are at a higher level. And so they get involved in more of the granular details that uh, oftentimes then is presented to the executive committee. So that kind of explains the hierarchy from the bottom up, how we get all the way to the top, which is the executive committee. 
That's incredible. So let's talk about the action on the racetrack. Who's responsible for animal welfare there? Well, I like to look at it as a collaborative effort. And and I believe it is. When I came to AQHA, there were a lot of people that had kind of shut the door on affording AQHA a voice. They looked at us as trying to be big brother because we're a breed registry and not a regulator. And so my first goal on the job was to soften those relationships and make sure that we viewed each other as partners and that I was here to carry their torch, that that I wanted to help them in anything that they were doing to protect and preserve the industry. And I've done that. I, I consider many of the executive directors at the different regulatory bodies my friend. They're people that I can call on their cell phone at a late hour or on a weekend because we have something going on. And there are times that they seek my help and support or opinion on certain matters. So while they are the governing body, they have the rules and regulations that racing has to follow. They afford me a voice to positively impact the implementation of that regulation. Okay. Now we've talked before on on some of our animal welfare podcast about adjudication, uh, which is the process of an organizing body goes through when an issue involves disciplinary action. So what happens in racing when there's an animal welfare concern or a violation? Well, we even consider medication violations an animal welfare concern because we're trying to protect the horse from a performance-enhancing drug that may be to the detriment of his well-being. So I think everything we do, even on the medication side, is pertinent to animal welfare. And so, again, we are the breed registry. We are not the regulator. But we help lobby for things that protect the horse. And so there are medication levels that we we discuss that we're involved in. There are the impact of certain uh, drugs that are maybe used for off-label use that in turn become a performance-enhancing drug that we are involved in those discussions through the RMTC and the ARCI. So when it comes to finding a, a positive test in a post-race sample, or there's a plethora of other testing opportunities in racing. There's what we call out-of-competition testing. Um, there's condition of entry testing. And then, of course, the post-race uh, samples. And if there's a positive that's found, it depends on the specific conditions of the race, but that positive is brought before the stewards. And the stewards aren't like the stewards in the show horse business. They're not assisting a class. They are actually the judges. They're the first line of adjudication for a case. And so they get to present the findings, present quantitative analysis if it's available, and then they actually have a ruling, and uh, and the horseman can either accept the ruling or he has the opportunity to appeal it to the commissioners themselves. And the commissioners then hear the case, and from that level, they can go to the regular courts. So circling back to the the horseman has the opportunity to appeal the case, but consideration is the impact on the horse. And the adjudications are supposed to help protect the horse and protect the industry and deter those who might be seeking an unfair advantage. And our answer to that at AQHA is something we call our awards and media policy. And we are, as a breed registry, the one who actually names uh, certain achievements that are related to the performance of horses. And so we wanted to be careful and make sure that anybody that received uh, either recognition in our magazines and our media 
uh, our social media and our champions awards and even regional awards, that they were aligned with our principles and our expectations of integrity. So when we have people that are horsemen that have been adjudicated over a class one positive finding, then they go on our awards and media list as do the associated horses in their stable. Because the thought process is that if those horses were associated with a trainer that did not follow regulation and was seeking an unfair advantage, then we don't want them to be able to receive AQHA awards later. And we also want to encourage owners to align themselves with horsemen of integrity. So that's the intent of the policy. And I have one staff member who spends much of her day every day working on that. She monitors all of the ARCI rulings, and then she helps keep up with the list. And then every Friday, she updates the list on our website and sends it to our media associates. So that's a measure that we take to help support adjudications and to help support integrity in the sport. For our listeners that are not familiar with the process. Let's talk about how horses are tested after the race. But then also you mentioned a while ago that in in some cases, horses are tested before the race. Kind of talk about that because I think this is going to be new to a lot of our listeners. Certainly. And, And I applaud our regulators for being willing to take on new testing mechanisms to help protect the sport. So we at AQHA, starting in about 2015, we became a strong proponent of what we call condition of entry testing. And that means a horse has to test clean, usually in a hair test, although in some cases, some jurisdictions use it in blood and urine. But a hair test can identify certain prohibitive drugs for up to six months. And our policy is that if it had no place in a horse, then it should not be present in a hair sample. And so we collect hair samples for all of our challenge races. And most of the jurisdictions have condition of entry hair testing in some form for their races, whether it be for a specific race or for overall participation in their meet. And so in that particular testing mechanism, in most cases, it only disallows the horse from entering until he can produce a clean hair test. Some jurisdictions will say that they're on a vet's list for six months and unable to compete, but it varies from state to state. The trainer has no penalty because our thoughts at AQHA was that uh, the horse has not necessarily been in that person's care for that duration of time. And we just wanted to keep the horse that is potentially impacted by a performance enhancing drug out of the competition. And the beautiful part about that is the the case that we see in Oklahoma, where when they started their condition of entry testing at Remington Park, the first year they had like 40, 43 positive findings for class one drugs that had to be adjudicated through the regulators. Once they implemented hair testing and all horses had to clear a condition of entry hair test before they were allowed to enter any race during the meet, it reduced to one positive finding just three years later. And so we're, we're keeping it out of the adjudication process and we're keeping the, the cheaters from competing until their horses are clean. And so that's condition of entry testing. Now we go on to out of competition testing. 
out-of-competition testing can be any testing medium. It can be hair, it can be blood, it can be urine, it can be a nasal swab. But what it is, is it's a test that is not directly following a competition, and it can be done at any time. Uh, It all depends on the, the specific rules in particular jurisdiction, but For the most part, when you are in the enclosure or you are asked to report for an out-of-competition test, then then they can test and send it off and make sure that your horse is free of any prohibited substance. You know, it's important to note that we're not looking for what we call controlled therapeutics. There is a big difference in medications between controlled therapeutics, like you and I might take an Advil or an Aleve, versus a performance-enhancing drug that's going to impact the outcome of a race because it's pushing a horse to that outer limit. And so what they're looking for are those prohibited substances and the things that the general public might call drugs. That's what we're looking for, not the controlled therapeutic medication. And the whole intent, again, it's to be a deterrent because people are vulnerable, if you will, to being tested at any time, and it, it helps them follow regulation. It's been very successful. And and then we get to the final form of testing that we're used to, that we've been doing for years. I mean, decades ago, they call it the spit box. The horses, usually the first and second place horse and a random horse thereafter are, are to report to the test barn and they pull blood and urine and those go off to the laboratory for testing. You know, they, they hold the purses until the tests come back and clear and um, then, then they disperse the purses. And, and we're talking about a lot of money. And so... If there is a positive finding, the horseman has the opportunity to send off a split sample. Every time they collect a sample, they retain a split so that it can be uh, verified by another laboratory. And so uh, if the split sample does not confirm what was found in the original sample, then, then the test clears and the horsemen get their money. If it confirms what was found in the original sample, and uh, then they are ruled on and they go through the adjudication process. Yeah, we kind of talked about that whole adjudication process where then they go before the stewards, there's a ruling, they can appeal it and what have you. And uh, the whole time the money's held up because we're not going to give a potential person seeking an unfair advantage the purse money. Wow, that's so expansive. I had no idea. Wow, I'm so excited that I got to learn more today. So technology has had such an impact on the equine industry, and this includes racing. Recently, it was announced that microchip identification will be going into effect in 2024. This is going to take place of the old tattooing system. So can you tell us about how that's going to work and why it's better? Certainly. Uh, Happy to finally be evolving uh, with the technology available to us today. For decades, racehorses have been identified by an AQHA identifier to confirm that that horse is actually the horse that is represented on the registration papers and parentage verified. And so, and once done by our identifier, then the identifier applies a lip tattoo so that that lip tattoo is what's used in the saddling paddock to identify a horse as who he is supposed to be. And and this is important in competition because you don't want a horse that is a proven stakes horse that's won half a million dollars trying to run as a ringer for a, a, a lesser competition. And it's, it's all about integrity and keeping it fair and making sure the right horse is being led up there for the right race. 
Well, a tattoo system is getting antiquated. Its its time has long since passed. And now we have the opportunity to microchip our horses and use that microchip as a component in actually verifying the identity. Verifying the identity is staying the same as we've done all along. That's where people get a little confused. You have your horse chipped, but he still has to be presented to our AQHA identifier to be verified. And we have an application that we've developed specific for our identifiers. We had a whole group of them here in the office training, and it was went superbly well, where they then input the data on an application on iPads that we assign them. And it it gets downloaded to our database that night. And that microchip then is associated with that horse as his identification having been verified. It then goes in a data share that we have daily with Jockey Club Information Systems because they monitor a system called Encompass. And Encompass is what helps the racetrack manage all of their races. So the track paddock identifiers who when they lead horses up for a race, the track has an employee in the paddock identifier that's separate from our identifiers who verified the identification in the first place. The paddock identifier can then scan that chip and they get the feed from Encompass and it confirms that it's the horse it's supposed to be. So there are other applications that a chip can be used to help integrity in the sport. Um, For instance, Most jurisdictions now have a rule where once a horse qualifies for a given stakes race, he is not allowed to leave the racetrack enclosure until he runs in the finals. Well, there's very few security guards on a stable gate that can read a lip tattoo. They're they're not easily read. And so people would be taking horses out when they're not supposed to be and just say that it was another horse. Well, now you're going to have a security guard at every stable gate with a scanner, and he's going to scan that trailer before they leave, and he's going to be able to make sure that the horsemen are following regulation. And the same is true for uh, there's certain surveillance that's put on key races, and and you're going to be able to monitor that you're watching the right horse just through virtue of the fact that they, they have a scanner and they have access to a list of what those horses should be. And so it, it steps things up quite a bit. There are other opportunities. There are platforms available that people may choose to use through the use of the chip to manage their stable. AQHA is not involved with with the platforms outside of the fact that we do have a corporate sponsor in LipChip, but our primary reason for having chips is to identify the horse. A member's opportunity to use any of the platforms that are available is their choice, but we just think that it's enhanced now through the implementation of this program. That's good. That's good. Janet, this has been really, really interesting and really informing. But is there anything else you would like to add about the future of quarter horse racing? Well, I think every single sport has its problems, and and we are not free of that. But we at AQHA are working hard on every single problem to make sure that our industry has a future and that breeders still want to breed American quarter horses. And apparently we're doing a decent job because our numbers are up, our challenge enrollments are up. There are new racetracks that are being planned out as we speak, both Wyoming, Kentucky, and Nebraska all have plans for new racetracks in in the immediate future. And I think that means that there are exciting times ahead for quarter horse racing. That's so exciting. It's been a pleasure having you on today. Thank you so much for your time, Janet. We really appreciate it. It's been an honor for me to do so. Thanks for the opportunity. 
Yeah, Janet, thanks for uh, coming by this morning. We really appreciate it. And uh, talking with Bobby and me, because like I said a while ago, this this has been really informing. Bobby, take us to our news segment. Welcome to our news segment of Let's Talk AQHA. The 2024 AQHA convention schedule has been released and registration is now open. Register online by January 31st to avoid late registration fees and join us for the 2024 AQHA convention, March 15th through the 18th at the South Point Hotel and Casino in Las Vegas. Don't miss out on young adult opportunities. AQH lead and AQHA Emerging Leader Award application deadlines are approaching. AQH lead applications close December 31st, 2023. AQHA Emerging Leader Award nominations close January 15th, 2024. The 2024 AQHA Official Handbook of Rules and Regulations is now available online and in print. The printed rulebook can be purchased at $10 at www.aqha.com rulebook request form or a free PDF can be found online at www.aqha.com aqha-rulebook. AQHA members can also download the app available on iOS and Android app stores. January 15, 2024 is the deadline for the 2024 American Quarter Horse Foundation Scholarship Applications. Applicants wishing to obtain a scholarship funding from the foundation for the 2024-25 academic year can download the scholarship guidelines for a complete list of criteria requirements. The American Quarter Horse Association will begin transitioning to microchips in place of lip tattoos to identify racing American Quarter Horses, effective January 1, 2024. 